You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech, where we live in the space between songs, where we live in that moment right before a music fan clicks on your call to action, and where we run as fast as we can from that fog where music floats around without attribution and without a pathway to support the people who make the music. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. And Music Tectonics, the podcast, is bringing you lots of great content from what we're going to have at our our conference, Music Tectonics Conference, which is taking place October 26th through 28th, 2020, online. Super excited because I have a couple of our speakers from the conference and our supernovas, Linkfire, with us. I've got with us Lars Etrup, the CEO and co-founder of Linkfire, and Andrea Arkari, Chief Business Officer and co-founder as well. Lars, how's it going? It's going really well. Thanks, Dimitri. You're calling in from Denmark, right? Yes, correct. Europe, Denmark. Yes. And Andrea in from LA, right? Yeah, Dimitri. How are you? That's great. We've got three time zones on the on the podcast, which is great. And uh, really excited that you guys are coming into Music Tectonics. Andrea, you spoke last year as well. We've got Lars on board as well. And um, Yeppe, your other co-founder, chief commercial officer, is also going to be at the conference. And uh, really excited to have the support. And um, from the outside, Linkfire looks like a smart link and music landing page generator. Um, but there, there's a lot more going on that meets, than meets the eye. So we'll get deeper into the insights uh, and calls to action that Linkfire offers. But let's first get started with some background. Lars, let's kick it off with you. Where did you come from and how did you land on co-founding Linkfire? Thanks, Dimitri. Yes, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's a bit of a long story. So I met uh, <laughs> uh, Jeppe and Andrea back in 2014. Um, we didn't really have a background. Andrea has a background in music. Jeppe and I don't have a background in music. We have a background in, our, in respectively uh, tech and marketing. And so really that's how we, uh, we started, you know, connecting, um, my background. Yeah. Is I have a bachelor's degree in, in film and music production. Um, and then, um, also a degree in it. So it's so kind of like combining those two, uh, worlds and Yepa is, is actually a former professional tennis player, uh, wow. or at least under a youth level. Um, and he's really into marketing. And Andrea is uh, well. Andrea can probably speak a little bit about that, but he's a he's a former touring musician. So it's like really, you know, th- those kind of the, uh, the the matches that were made. Uh, initially, we didn't really target the music industry. Uh, we tried uh, a few other different industries and s- saw if uh, we could find a, a product fit uh, there. But it was really obvious that uh, there was a need for something like Linkfire in the music industry. So really quickly, we just started focusing on on music. Oh, interesting. So, what, I mean, were you working in, in sports or just more like B2B marketing stuff? Yeah. So we're a little bit all over the place, to, to be honest. <laughs> uh, we, we worked with, um, yeah, in, in sports verticals, uh, with agencies, uh, with uh, fast-moving consumer goods. Uh, so we were a little bit all over the place, and we are trying to find, you know, where is there kind of complexity that Linkfire can solve, um, and, and where is there also a need for the market like where are people you know open to to embrace this you know the, the product that we bring uh, but also like uh, wh- where is there uh, you know openness for innovation as well 
And and Lars, with your particular role, how do you kind of operate on a day to day basis? What what what's your role with Linkfire? And then, and then we'll get into Andrea and some other details about the company. Yeah, sure. So so my initial role was to build the initial version of the product. I don't do that anymore. Fortunately, we have a lot of good people that are way better at building than I am. Uh, now my role is more administration, um, strategy, investor relations, uh, and so forth. Got uh, it. That's another what I do. Got it. So, Andrea, I first met you in New York City, and now you're in LA. What's your background? Uh, Lars mentioned that you have a music background as well. And then, how did you find uh, yourself to Linkfire? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I started my career on on stage uh, as a as a recording and touring musician um, for a short while, uh, like very young and angrier days for sure. <laughs> um, and then when when like that sort of like uh, ended up, I, I turned to my other passion, which was always like I was always a bit of a geek, so I always enjoyed like tech a large and I had a small adventure uh, as, uh, as a CEO and founder myself to another company we were doing consumer electronics so a different space and at the end of that I kind of wanted to marry the two passions I was like it would be really cool to do something innovative in music and and like sort of like marry that with like tech innovation and I found Lars and Yeppe who, who had already like done their, their first steps in, in what is now Linkfire and like found my passion right away there kicked it off in Copenhagen I was in Yeppe's team actually in the very beginning like we're working very closely together and then ended up moving to New York City, uh, like getting closer to my current role, and now LA, where I opened up an office uh, three years ago. Got it. And what's your day-to-day role look like? I work primarily with our closest partners, uh, which more often than not are the DSPs. Um, and as of recent, especially this year, with uh, I like to call them innovative business models. So whenever whenever we work on repurposing our tech uh, into different verticals or like trying to find new revenue streams. Things that have a higher degree of like risk and uncertainty, perhaps, and, and require a little bit more of experimentation, end up falling on my table. Got it. Great. Okay. So Lars, in the intro, I mentioned that there's more going on with Linkfire than it appears. At least for me, I always find out about more and more stuff that you guys are kind of moving into and, and checking out. That there, there's there's more than just this. Like, uh, it's not just a bitly for the music industry. Can you tell us more in depth what Linkfire does today and and how that evolved from the beginning? Yeah, sure. So today we have a strategy that uh, focuses on the artist and 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 the products that an artist can you know uh, uh, bring to market. So so that could be the recording, it could be you know the merchandise, the T-shirt, could be the touring. Uh, so anything around the artist really. And then we try to look at you know the release cycles of a of a product. So you know before the product comes to market, after the product comes to market, and so on. And then we really try to see you know can we create you know links or or small uh, campaigns that can you know uh, support uh, these product releases so that's really how we we, we look at it uh, and so you know historically we started with um, how you can say streaming links or these smart links that led into streaming services mm-hmm. it's still like uh, the predominant use case of our platform i would say but but in the past in over the last two years we've seen you know an increase in 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 other link types, uh, so to say, um, and it's definitely obviously right now it's a little bit of a delicate situation with with live and and with, and with merch and so on. But um, as soon as it bounces back, uh, we we do expect to see more uh, usage on on those type of links as well. And so really, that that's kind of our our strategy is to make sure that we cover any product an artist could output, kind of three hundred and sixty in our platform. So from a from a fan perspective, you might stumble onto a Linkfire landing page and it might have 
different uh, streaming services links to. It could be for a album or for a song, and it goes out to, say, Spotify and, and Pandora and other, other streaming services. And what else will they see on that page? Yeah, so, um, so they can see all the streaming services. They can see the stores where the T-shirts, where the merchandise is available. They can see uh, tour dates. They can see the nearest uh, uh, live event and so on. And so really what we're trying to do is we're trying to make uh, every fan journey or user journey as relevant as possible. So it's like essentially there's like no user journey that is the same. So whenever uh, you click on a link or someone else clicks on a link, we we start looking at where is the user clicking from or the fan clicking from uh, and, and what is relevant right now. So it could be a, a pop link that they've clicked on. Uh, we show the most relevant music services where you can uh, enjoy or consume that song. Uh, but we also uh, try to show something else that is relevant uh, for that experience. And, and so and that, that can be a completely different experience if you click from somewhere else in the world or a different time of day or or in another city really how is this different than an artist's website where they might have a biography section a video an audio a live um you know some press clippings their booking contact what what makes this different from just having a website uh true uh i mean obviously there is this whole intelligence that we tailor every experience uh, uh to the fan uh, so that we make sure that we get the highest and most relevant uh, conversion possible, uh, basically. Uh, then there's a lot of automation taking place, so we update everything uh, automatically. Uh, and so I think that that's uh, um, uh, one of the biggest key differentiators. Uh, but you're quite right. Uh, there are becoming more and more you know, overlaps between what we do and a traditional artist website. But the artist website may not deliver the same level of analytics, especially uh, as 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 they click through to a streaming service. You guys are correct. able to reveal other information that a website doesn't. Is that right? Yes, correct to to some extent. Yes, uh, it's been been a mission of ours. Uh, well, since you know the founding years uh, was that we we wanted to see how far can we kind of push to tra- uh, push to transparency. So that um, essentially, you know, coming from a, a normal e-commerce background um, is like we, we would like to see when someone clicks on a link or any of our uh, assets, what did that generate? Did it generate a, a, a stream or a download or transaction and so on? And so basically so that we can optimize that performance, if I whether or not I post it on, on a social media or whether or not I, I spend money on advertising. It's really great to know if there's, you know, what's the, what's the effect, what's the performance of this. And we just found that the music industry was one big black box, essentially. Like you, like the, 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 the tracking stopped at some point. And so for us, it was very clear that um, we, we had a position where we could go out and, and see, you know, let's partner up with some of these DSPs or, or retailers at the end of the, the user journey and see, you know, how can how can we bring this data to life and and what we found out was that it wasn't that the fact that the dsps didn't have an interest in doing it it was just like well how are we going to do it how are we going to bring it to market and so that's kind of been our mission for the past few years is okay well let's figure it out together you know let's bring that that to life got it so who are your typical users uh traditionally uh record labels 
major record labels, um, independent labels, distributors. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we started opening up for more more kind of the long tail, like artists directly, promoters directly, and so on. Mm. Um, today is around uh, one third is uh, is major record labels, and two thirds are like uh, artists directly. Mm-hmm. And and are you able to talk about how much traction you have in terms of users? Sure, sure. Huh. Uh, at the end of this year, we'll hit around sixty thousand users. Oh wow, wow, that's a lot of people building smart links. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we we create. I think right now the latest number from September is one hundred and twenty thousand smart links uh, in September alone, mm. and so and and that's new releases or new products basically out. Um, mm-hmm. We do have. Yeah, so I mean, we obviously started with a few links every month, and then uh, it's it's building on. Um, I think right now we expect the end of this year to. You have about close to one and a half, two billion uh, visitors, you know, engaging with the with the links. So it's it's pretty it's pretty high volume game uh, we're talking about. Yeah, is it possible to tell us about some specific examples of users and and, and customers and interesting that things that they're doing with Linkfire? Just some of that specificity helps people understand sort of oh, you could use it this way, you could use it that way, and so forth. Yeah, sure. So our our release links, our you know traditional one. When you release a new uh, song or a new album, you would go in and, and build a Linkfire link, and then you would um, take that link and you then uh, push that link or promote that link on on whatever platform you're using to promote your release. So that could be you know uh, Facebook, it could be Snapchat, uh, it could be through your email um, uh, marketing campaign. It could also be that you put the link behind. Um, in Facebook or Google ads and so on. So essentially it's a link. So it's, it's, it's pretty versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you then drive uh, um, your fans into the respective uh, DSPs. Uh, if you're building a, a tour link, it could be to show your tour plan. It could be to drive users into the most relevant uh, event uh, on that tour. Uh, and so, so that's some of the use cases. It could also be like that once you're, release is maybe not new anymore when it's you know it's six months after the release but you're still seeing that fans are you know clicking on the link they're engaging with you maybe you don't want to promote your new release maybe you actually want to try and sell some tickets or some merch or at least uh you know make fans aware of your your back catalog and so on so the different objectives depending on you know how far from release date uh are we right yeah. So, um, Andrea, let's get you in on this. What what else can users do with Linkfire? What what have we not brought up as possible use cases uh, for how these labels and artists and managers can use Linkfire? It's very useful in uh, in the period leading up to a release uh, because, as you correctly like pointed out, Dimitri, like one of our one of our key USPs to the market is the strong uh, analytics and insights that we bring, and. If, if you think about it in, in a release cycle where like you'll have a first single going out and then a second single going out and a third going out before the, the album actually hits and you want to kind of keep like that fun audience engaged like there's so much noise and buzz out in the internet and you kind of want to re-engage with them like efficiently like something that we see very often is they'll start you know like a traditional record label will start with a pre-release link which is basically a promotional landing page 
that, that promotes content that is yet not available. You, like through some integrations to DSPs, you can pre-add or pre-save a certain content, which means like when it actually gets released, like it gets added automatically to your library, you get a notification app. That's great to like sort of like see the audience, like see, you know, like what is the enthusiasm behind this release? Like, you know, how, how many people are interacting with that? And then like through those insights, like you sort of like prepare the strategy for your first single going out. So like when the first single reaches out, you have the pre-release campaign sort of serves like like a backbone and like a bit of a blueprint for like when and where you're going you're gonna to release your single. Like which countries are you going to focus your marketing on? Which platform are you going to push it on? And then you use that information for the second single. And, and then you go like oh, with, the, with, the, with the album. And then from the album, you'll promote the tour. So there's, there's, some, there's some, some cyclical aspect of utilizing Linkfer for all those different objectives where the more you use it, the better you understand your fan audience. And the better you understand it, the better you can serve it. Because as Lars pointed out, a lot of our assets are highly dynamic. So you can tailor a specific experience, meaning which services are displayed and in which order. And like, is there a video up top? Is there no video up top? Like, will you receive an email afterwards? All those little details that make that fan experience a little bit more special. Uh, by continuously engaging with them on the different objectives of uh, of a release cycle, it seems like what we're, what we're talking about is kind of a bridge between, say, an artist website uh, and the and the streaming services in in a lot of cases, in the sense that it's it's like a gateway. And sure, you could just on your website link to your artist page on several streaming services. But A, you won't get much information about what they do after they click that link. And B, you can't really customize it for different calls to action, right? You'd have to be constantly updating your website with uh, with different links like, oh, now I want you to pre-save. Now I want you to do uh, follow this album. Now I want you to follow this single. Um, and and doing that with multiple streaming services, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. And so it seems like you're kind of like, it's almost like um like a, a train switchyard <laughs> for a giving the fan a, a journey, as L Lars said, to the the streaming service or the experience that they want and the one that you're kind of directing them to, and b customizing what the call to action is based on what you're talking about, Andrea, in terms of where they are in the cycle of a release or a tour or whatever else they're trying to do. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if you think about it, we're at the peak of the attention economy. The disadvantage of using a website in the of Linkfire, let's say that we didn't exist, is the website is too all-encompassing. There's too many things you can you can get quote unquote distracted by, right? Like, and if you're trying to target a specific audience with a specific message right when you have their attention, and we all know how expensive is it to acquire somebody's attention nowadays, it's very important that they cannot get distracted. And like, you actually wanted them to engage with the single that just came out. It's important for you to accrue, accrue streams. You want to make the charts. And then all of a sudden you point them on a website and there's like a beautiful new like photo shoot that went out like with a famous photographer and like and they get lost in that in that train and like and you lost their attention in that moment. Uh, we, like artist websites have a reason to to be out there, but like in a marketing setting, like when you're really trying to tailor your messaging and like and ultimately drive a specific action out of the user, they 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 can be a little bit more inefficient. Link first landing pages and with their simplicity, like get the job done faster. Got it. So how does this, Lars, how does this differ between enterprise customers, major labels, and indie artists? Is it a different experience for each? Yeah, completely. Um, so there are different needs, different use cases. <clears throat> so 
uh, you could say enterprise, major labels, bigger indies, and so on. Um, they produce or or they set up many many more links, have many many more releases than than artists. So they have multiple users working on the same link. Um, they have uh, integrations with their own internal systems and so on. Uh, and so there's a lot more features that kind of is tailored to to bigger organizations. Um, there's also uh, different wordings and so on being used. Um, and for for artists directly, it's a more uh, in and out kind of, uh, you know, it's it's easier to create a link. Um, and uh, we we scraped away a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the how you can say unnecessary stuff uh, mm-hmm. that is, uh, is is not necessary for an artist necessarily. Got it. And and uh, you're in Denmark. Andrea's in L.A. Yepes in between in New York. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, is this primarily an American user base? Uh, what are you seeing? as the music industry becomes more global in the sense that there's less barriers between um, reaching fans in different territories, does this, tra- this type of tool translate across territories? I mean, creating all these links probably differs for uh, DSP to DSP from country to country. How does that all work? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think about 30, 35% of our clients are US-based. Um, and that that correlates a little bit to our traffic. I think forty uh, percent of our traffic comes from the U.S. Uh, so still very U.S. centric. Um, that's why we have two offices in the U.S. as well. But we see huge growth in, in particular, uh, Latin America, but also Asia, uh, basically. Um, so one of our, our key interest markets are are definitely in, in Southeast Asia as well, where we see a, a huge exponential growth of of traffic as well. Hmm. So uh, you got you you're, you you concur with this uh, thing that we're seeing on from other podcast guests that uh, there's a lot more happening across borders than ever before. Oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, um, well, well, let me go to a B two B question. We've talked a little bit about what the use cases are uh, for your users, but Andrea, um, since you're you're doing these these deals with platforms, wh- why do DSPs give you access to these insights? Well, I mean, Lars sort of touched upon it before. DSPs like believe that empowering the market with this data is valuable, and they do so through a series of tools that they build internally. I mean, we we all saw the rise of the insert DSP name for artists, right? Over the past few years, Amazon, Apple Music, Spotify, like like every, everybody has their own version. And these tools are fantastic if you're looking at an aggregate. Like if you're trying to understand how you or your artists perform on a certain DSP in a given month, let's say, like, you know, what playlist did I make it up to? How many streams did I run cap? How many new fans? And that view is super important and valuable. What we deal with, though, is is more like slices of that of that like of that scenario. So I'm I'm not so interested in, in telling a label how many streams they accumulated for a certain artist in a month because that's good for them like to, to understand their overall strategy perhaps. But if they're trying to understand where should they put their marketing dollars, like you know, the, the campaign that they launched yesterday on social media A did did it yield the results that they wanted? They need that same data repackaged in a way that can be understood in a marketed sense. And so it's a matter of slicing that data set in a way that can be parsed back to a journey. And so what we what we work with DSPs with, and it's been a big evangelization effort from our side that I'm really happy it's it's, it's taking uh, like it's, it's taking space in in the market, and we have more and more partners that believe that this is ultimately valuable. 
is take that data and actually like apply it to a specific campaign. So don't don't tell me like a monthly amount of listens. Tell me how many listens spun out of this specific link, mm. which I put some dollars behind. Because if I can see that the return on investment was positive and like a certain channel converted better, I'm gonna spend more money in that direction. I'm I'm gonna have further investment. I'm gonna in, like inform my strategy like from a marketing standpoint towards that way. And from a DSP standpoint, if you think about it. If you can differentiate yourself from competitors, because say you can tell like your label partners, like the user journey ending up on our DSP convert better than they do in another competitor, you're actually earning an edge. Like you, you, you're basically telling that specific label, don't send them everywhere, like send them more my way, which like sort of fits with the engagement objectives of many of these DSPs. So, so it's really a win-win. Yeah, I kind of hear two different things, uh, like kind of a, two levels of this this conversation. One is that uh, giving artists more data and labels more data basically removes a layer of confusion about where they should be directing fans. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the thing here that may be not super intuitive in the beginning is every DSP has its own audience, right? So like there's, there's a value in presenting them with the options, but then there are differences in between different artists and different genres. And so if you treat everything in your catalog the same and you just like present the same options to everybody and you don't quite know whether there's a difference between service A or service B, you're, you're kind of like left half blind. It's, it's the old, you know, marketing paradox of like 50% of your marketing is not working. You just don't know which one. And right. so it removes confusion and, and it informs spending. So like it, it helps them be more efficient with where they put their marketing dollars. Mm. And so in a way, you guys are adding in a layer, this, this switchyard approach is allow, uh, adding in this layer that allows for more accurate and more authentic segmentation to, for fan marketing, right? Say, uh, this, this, this group of um, t- targets on this social media platform respond well to this type of campaign towards this DSP or this experience, and this one from my website responds well from here, and you start to collect more information about how to, how to target them and, and, like you said, insert more money or more resources into directing in a certain way. Yeah, you embrace the fragmentation instead of rejecting it. Aha. When, when Link for... When Link for First came to market, Dimitri, and you must remember this, usually marketers would send people into one destination. Yes. And it was sort of like legacy, right? It's like, oh, we just expect everybody to be downloading music that way. And that was great in the early 2000s. But then as more and more services come about, you can't ignore that. And the, the misconception was people are going to find their way. You know, we're going to send them in one place and like they're going to find their way to like whichever service they, they own and, and operate. And we all know that's just not true. Like, again, we're at the peak of the attention economy. You must present a, like a user with the right offer at the right time. It must be simple. There shouldn't be any friction in between or you're going to lose them. So not embracing fragmentation and just expecting people to find their way equals basically losing them to their next Netflix video or, or some other some other version of, of, of like content and entertainment that ultimately is not going to result into a stream. Right. Makes sense. I love that. Embrace the fragmentation. I think we might uh, have to use that. Maybe the title of this episode. We'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, so the second layer is really that once you empower 
the, 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 the artist team to, to do this and gather this information, they actually can invest more in pushing traffic towards these DSPs because they're getting better conversion of it. So that's where the value really comes back to the DSP. A, it's the right thing to do for the artist to have control and understand um, you know, how to serve their fans better. But B, down the line, as you do that, then that allows the, the artist management team to, to actually increase the amount of fuel that they're pushing towards a particular DSP because it's working. That's absolutely correct. And it, it's why, as I was mentioning before, ultimately the return on investment of this type of integrations is, is great for DSPs as well, because you can show, you, you show that like your platform works well and there's good conversion rates and like people land and actually listen to what was intended. People are going to send more people your way. Like it's, it's, it's that easy in the end. Yeah. Got it. All right. This is this is interesting because now I think we've really gotten to where the value is here, and uh, bo on both sides, you know, with the with the artist label user and also with the with the DSPs there, because you're really when you say embrace the fragmentation, you're actually talking about build bridges across it so that all the different um, journeys. Uh, flow correctly in a way that's efficient and that that fans are getting what they want, artists are getting what they want, DSPs are getting what they want. So th this has been a great explanation. I think we finally got to that that layer of where this is all coming from, where the value really is. So, but there are a lot of crazy narratives going on in the music industry right now that I want to just bring up because I think it's kind of related to the overall conversation. Things like streaming saved the music industry, streaming undercut the traditional retail even downloads. Artists don't make enough from streams. Uh, UGC platforms don't attribute rights holders or they don't pay enough. So you've got all the social video and, and so forth there. Labels deal, label deals aren't fair. So in addition to people saying, oh, artists aren't getting paid enough, then you they throw labels into the mix and say, well, are labels getting enough and the artists aren't? And indie artists can't get above the noise among fans or among B2B conversations. You guys are kind of, you know, building these bridges in the midst of all this this kind of controversy and conversation. What is the future of fan co conversion in this situation? What's the future of music monetization as it relates to what you're doing? Do one of you want to take that? Lars? <laughs> 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 That was a lot of questions. I wish I had something like a quote like Andreas said, but he's so good at English and I don't have those quotes. Um, well, hey, Lars, let me, let me, let me, yeah. let me phrase it another way then. Um, you know, even without all the stuff that I just said in terms of all those things that are influencing things, because I think you know they exist, where do you yeah. see this going next is really what I'm saying in terms of, you know, you guys are building these, these bridges and these insights as a result of these smart links that, that go deep. Where's the future of music monetization going? So I, I, I most definitely think that, you know, streaming has been a savior to the, to the recorded side of the industry, at least. Um, I think we, we, we all know the, the positive trend that, that we are on uh, in terms of uh, overall market growth. Um, so, so I definitely think that, you know, having content available in the right form, wherever the, the, the users are. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, in a streaming service. It could be in your messaging app. It could be in your, wherever you are engaged, you know, content needs to be available there. So I think that's probably the next kind of, uh, shift we will see we're seeing it now where music is you know a an engagement layer on top of other other content 
Um, and so I, I think that's really the next kind of chapter we'll see more of. Um, and then I think monetization will, will, will have to follow where the engagement are. I, I think uh, um, you, can, you can monetize on music without necessarily being a, a, a subscriber or having subscribers. There's different ways. There's you know, donations and, and so on, micro, micro purchases and so on. So I think if we're trying to be a little bit futuristic about it, I think that's where we're, we're going. Uh, from our end, what, what we are trying to do is basically just automate as much as possible uh, within our platform, make it available not just to major labels but to artists directly, so that everyone you know have the same opportunity, uh, basically. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Andrea, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, you're we're actually talking about you jumping on a, a conversation at the conference that sort of is this kind of what's the future view of this kind of stuff, and we've just confirmed that uh, Patreon will be joining you on a on a panel as well. Um, what, what, what else are you seeing and kind of where the future is going on this? I think, and, and, and here, like, I, I also think back at my, my days as a recording musician, signing a traditional label agreement. And so like, having been on that side of the business, I think the future holds like looking at from an artist standpoint, like looking at your, your material, your art, like a little bit more in 3d. So like perhaps like venture out of the linear, uh, transaction in between, like I produce something, I market it to my audience, they consume it, they'll listen to it, they'll buy it in whatever format is available. And then on to the next thing, right? Whether it's the tour, whether it's the t-shirt and whatnot. Uh, like music holds some some strong emotional uh, like ties uh, that is very powerful in, in the context of engagement. So perhaps like look at your distribution strategy. Like, you know, how are you reaching your, your audiences? Like directly through promotion, great. But is your music available also like where your audiences hang out? Like we're seeing a lot more, like as, as you were saying before, like, you know, a lot more companies that don't necessarily have like music in their DNA, like starting to adopt music as an engagement component, social media websites, live streaming sites and whatnot. Why? Because that's where people hang out. That's, that's where people exchange ideas. That's where people in, interact. And so it's important that your music is present in those circumstances and in a way that it's engaging, in a way that it's 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 manageable, like it's uh, it's utilizable. So first of all, like on, on that sense, like you know, kind of expand, and then I think that ultimately we'll have to look at you know what what the East has done in terms of like attaching like a, a new layer of monetization that is perhaps more on fandom and less on consumption, and see what can we replicate over here in the West. Either like one on one, like picking up some of the good ideas that have, that have worked over there. Like I'm, I'm looking at like you know what Tencent Music has done. I'm looking at what Alibaba Music has done, and also like a lot of the services in Japan, uh, where the relationship between fan and, and artist is still like th there's much more attachment in between the two, and like there's there's less separation in between like even streaming and physical goods. Like where you see the same fan owning a streaming subscription where they listen to the entire catalog of their favorite artist. But then they also buy their CD because there's there's an aspect of fandom into purchasing a physical good that is attached to that content. And then there's there's all these new like digital tokens and like and small rewards that you can purchase on different sites on different platforms that sort of like further define your status of a super fan and like sort of like layer and really differentiate between somebody who's just like lean back liking an artist or like really into it. In the West, we don't really have a good way to distinguish between the two in a digital sense. Hmm. We know it exists out there, but like fan clubs are a little bit of thing of the past. Like, you know, how do we bring it back? Because like people want to stand out. People want to be like the number one 
I'm gonna make an example, Foo Fighters fan into their city, like and know that that they're that and like being recognized for that. So how how do we look at that? How do we how do we put it like a dollar sign on that interaction? Because fandom is much more multipliable as an interaction than consumption is, especially in the streaming world where mm. it's basically a, a big a la carte, you know, like pay one price and have access to everything. Uh, so I, I think there's going to be some interesting development in that sense. Wow. Now you're just getting me excited for the conference, Andrea. Your, your panel is going to be super interesting. Um, you know, we, we kicked off last year's conference with uh, Mark Mulligan from Media Research keynote. And, and, and I think one of the biggest aha moments for everybody that saw that was him talking about this, the future of, of kind of revenue in the music industry is monetizing fandom and, and, and similarly talking about what's happening in Asia and how it's bound to come over here. We're seeing it in gaming in, in, the, in the West um, and it'll be fun to see you, uh, Seth Shackner from Strat Americas, um, who, who also works with Smule and, uh, the folks from Patreon all getting together to have this conversation about where this is going. And, uh, your co-founder, uh, Yeppe Farfelt, who we mentioned at the beginning of the conference, he's going to do a lightning talk. These are like 15-minute big idea capsules. Um, and I'm curious if you can, maybe maybe Lars, if you want to take a stab at, at what he's talking about. He said it's going to be the future of the artist website. What is, what is he talking about there? Sure. Yeah, so we, we touched upon it a little bit, but but and you, you touched upon it as well. Um, so, so our our links, our landing pages act a little bit as artist websites, and and we believe that the future of artist websites, whether it's it's our landing pages or or an actual you know website for an artist, it needs to be dynamic. It needs to be bespoke. Uh, it needs to grab the attention and it needs to deliver the best experience. And so that is basically whether or not it is um, serving the right content or the right message at that given time. So that's really what he's going to talk about. Like, how, how do we try to make a difference there? Mm, that'll be interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks for explaining that. I'm so excited. You guys have come on as Supernova sponsors for the conference. So you've given us full support, which is amazing. You attended the conference last year. And now you're coming out with um, a lot of different conversations and, and you'll have a digital exhibit booth there as well. Andrea, what else are you hoping to get out of the conference? I'm hoping to connect with... Uh... So many beautiful people in our industry that I didn't get the chance to see this year, because uh, as as we all know, it's been it's been a difficult year for physical interaction. And uh, I'm super glad that this conference is going on, Dimitri, because I think like like me, many other folks in on on the site like look forward to exchange ideas and like see those names at least popping on the screen, some faces on video, hopefully, and and like and feel like you know we're we're all we're all together working through this despite like everything is going on. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. That is the spirit of the conference. And we've actually, we're doing a couple of things technically with the conference that should empower that. One is we're having an opening and closing party in a virtual avatar-based world, which means you'll get to choose your clothes <laughs> and your hairstyle and walk around this really cool virtual conference center. Um, and as your avatar walks around, you'll have spatial audio. So your microphone will be on. And so when you see a name you recognize, you can literally walk up to them as an avatar and say, hello. Hey, Andrea, I haven't seen you, man. Last time I saw you was, you know, South by Southwest five years ago, whatever it is. And you can literally talk and somebody else can walk into the conversation. So that's our opening and closing party. And then the actual platform that the main conference where the panels and the keynotes and all that stuff will be and the exhibit booths has one-to-one -one video chat. So there's a networking room and you'll randomly 
usually get matched up with somebody for five minutes. And then when it's over, they'll match you with another person. So tons of one-on-one -on -one video chat, just like if you ran into somebody at a reception or in the lobby of the hotel and you grab a, you know, a lobby ch chair and have a quick, you know, five minute meeting. You can also do the one-to-one -one video chat with anybody at the conference as well. So I, Andrea, I'm glad you said that because we're trying to replicate that in virtual form as best we can. So you let me know if it works. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited, Dimitri. I think it's going to be cool. <laughs> Great. Well, Lars, Andrea, this has been a blast getting really deep into uh, what you guys are doing, where it's going. And I'm super excited that we'll get to have an even further conversation when you're at Music Tectonics. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you for the space. And yeah, excited to be a part of this. Awesome. Thanks, Lars. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you soon. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Please hit subscribe, but make sure to go to musictectonics.com. In fact, check us out on our social media because we are doing a contest right now for music tech startups. We're doing a music tech startup pitch competition, and there's a method to apply. It's not that hard. You basically just have to share a link on your social media, and we'll be looking at all the startups there. We'll choose five of them who will get to do a pitch at the Music Tech Tonics Conference, and you'll get feedback from people like Arabian Prince, who is a founding member of NWA and also a tech investor, from uh, Zach Katz from Raised in Space, a great VC com company out of LA. Zach spoke at the conference last year. And uh, David Gabo from, um, from Union Square Ventures, which is the company that invested in SoundCloud, Kickstarter, Splice, Twitter, uh, So Far Sound. So make sure to check that out and keep listening for more episodes. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.